thought that video would really help me set up what we're going to look at for the second week in a row. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, ask you to go to John chapter 3 with me this morning. Have to take just a couple of minutes to do some review and then hopefully get into the new material. <clears throat> this is a very, very famous passage of Scripture. I'm going to read verses 1 through 21, but the truth is we're only going to look at probably today with our time frame verses 1 through 8. And if you remember, last week I asked you the question, what does it mean to be born again? Because this is that expression that comes up over and over in this passage. And in Newfoundland, maybe you've heard expressions like born again or saved. And yet last week, I can think this week, the term that maybe you have heard of is converted. He or she's been converted. That's more of a popular Newfoundland expression. If you remember, I asked you or told you about people in Hollywood and pop culture that claim to be born again. I told you about um, Gary Bercy, Bob Dylan, Tom Hanks, Jane Fonda, Charlie Sheen, Britney Spears, all claim to be born again. And last week we talked about how George Barna, that Christian research group, defines what born again means, and it was very, very shallow. As long as you had some type of experience, and as long as you felt the Bible had some semblance of importance, then you qualified to be born again. But is that truly how the Bible defines it? And we're now into this passage that is well known. Of course, it has that verse, John 3.16 in it. That's the verse I guarantee you, you have seen at a sports arena of some sort. You've seen it at protests and all kinds of things. Many of you here probably know exactly what I'm talking about. It's probably one of the first verses we memorized as children if you were raised in Sunday school. But you'll find out that the background of our passage is the still shocked faces of thousands of people that Je saw Jesus cleanse the temple. Remember, he has just exercised his authority and his zeal. And back in chapter 2, verses 23, 24, and 25, we're reminded that he did many signs that are unnamed. Because remember, John tells us in John chapter 20 that he specifically only picked out seven signs out of thousands that Jesus did because these seven are to make us draw conclusions. But in John chapter 2, 23 to 25, we again find out that he did all kinds of signs and the word was spreading. He turned water into wine. He'd cleansed the temple. Folks are looking at Jesus. And remember, he's still not doing what they expected him to do. He's not freeing Israel from Rome. He's not a revolutionary or any of these types of things. And again, I quoted my brother and friend, Steve Da. And when we were talking last week, who said, no matter what position you hold, Jesus will correct it. Because, as again, I want to remind us as we get into this passage, the first step in the rehabilitation of any man lies in his or her admission of guilt. You see, to benefit from a doctor, the patient must admit they're sick. Debbie and I both had to go to the doctor this week. I just sat in the doctor's office, and she came in, and she said, Hey, Steve and Debbie, why are you here? I didn't say, Well, because we're healthy, and we just missed you. The reason I went to see a doctor was because I knew I was sick, and I knew that the doctor was the one who I had to go to. 
And so that's what we need to always make sure we see it. In fact, remember last week I reminded you that a careful reading of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation will show you over and over again that God is holy and we are not. It is uncanny that all of the humans talked about in the entire Bible, none of them are heroes. In fact, it's a collection of mixed up, messed up people. No matter what their circumstances, left to ourselves, we always mess things up. But then you come to John chapter 3 and this amazing interaction of Jesus with Nicodemus. And remember what we said. Look back at verses 23 to 25. Remember all of this stuff that we're doing. And it's as though they believed in Jesus. Jesus did not believe in them. He had no faith in their faith. So when I asked you at the beginning of this sermon last week, what does it mean to be saved or born again or converted? Or at its basic core, what does it mean to be a Christian? I quote John MacArthur, put it like this. Jesus regarded all belief in him as superficial, which does not have as its most essential elements the consciousness of the need for forgiveness and the conviction that he alone is the mediator of that forgiveness. And that's the one thing I really want you to take home with you this morning. Because for the good news to be super good, which we're going to get to, the bad news has to be bad. Now, last week, we started with Nicodemus, my first point. The only point I got to last week, and we looked at the man, his pedigree, his position, and his approach. And before we look into that, let me read John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. I think the words will be on the screen as well. So John the Apostle records it like this. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees. Now, understand how this works, okay? When you read verse 25 of chapter 2, and it says, But Jesus on the hid part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him for he himself knew what was in man. And then the next word, now there was a man. So John the apostle is saying, you know what? Jesus didn't, Jesus himself knew what was in man. Now let me give you an example. Here's exhibit A. Now there was a man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And it's interesting, he goes to the top of the totem pole of the religious elite. And I'll tell you that in a second. Here there was a man named Nicodemus, notice his pedigree, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. So Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And then Jesus gives him an illustration. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. That's an illustration, because so it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. <laughs> Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? For the third time, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. 
if I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And here's another illustration. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, here's the commentary of that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Why? that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life or eternal life. Now, here's the explanation. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. In other words, by virtue of explanation, it must mean that the world is already condemned. He didn't have to come to condemn it. But notice this. But in order that the world might be saved through him. So, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. It's self-explanatory. Because he does not believe in the name of the only Son of God. And here's the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning again. And so very quickly, we want to look at Nicodemus, this man and his pedigree. And if you remember, I talked about the fact that here was this man. He was a man of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were an acknowledged, well group, a big group, a, a respected group. According to our passage, he was a ruler of the Jews, which means he was a part of the Sanhedrin. This was a group made of 71 men, and quite literally, I'm not exaggerating, this is not hyperbole, they literally, their job was to rule every Jew on the planet. They exercised authority over every single Jew on the planet in the first century. Plus, according to verse 10, Nicodemus was a teacher of the law which means he was an upperclassman. He was a man of authority and influence. He was likely a specialist in theology. And yet we see him coming at night to talk to Jesus. And so here was this upper-class, authoritative, influential specialist, still quietly empty, confused, maybe even scared, at least for sure, searching. And so please understand it's hard, as I said last week, for us to appreciate this because we've been so conditioned in the, new in the kind of new world where we hear a lot of preaching about the Old Testament and the New Testament and the Pharisees and how Jesus often called them out. So we don't have the warm and fuzzy feelings that a lot of people would. But in the first century, to be a Pharisee was a good thing. It was respected. Remember I said to you, he was religiously respected. He was admired, looked up to. He was also a respected ruler. People came to him with their struggles, their problems, and he was a respected scholar. So if somebody was reading the Old Testament or they were reading the Mishnah or the Talmud, they would come to Nicodemus and say, would you explain this to me? And he was known as someone who could. And so Kent Hughes puts it so eloquently. He says, on that quiet Palestinian evening, a perplexed man moved along the back streets of old Jerusalem to talk to a young rabbi. It was the greatest meeting of his life. 
a supreme experience. He was about to be alone face to face with Jesus. And my challenge to everyone last week was Nicodemus, ruler, respected, a teacher, still puts his searching into action. And I asked you last week and I ask you again today, are you doing that? Are you doing that? Every one of you here, because now there are people here this week that weren't here last week. And those of you that are here last week and are here again this week, every one of you here has questions about the Bible. You're not alive if you don't. Every one of you here has feelings about your own life and about God and the Bible and church and how you're living and why is something happening to you. I've gotten emails and Facebook messages in the last 40 hours of people wondering, why is this happening? We've all got those questions, those why questions. But how often do we often bury our curiosity and our searching and our doubt under the life of the mundane? We just push it away. And again, I remind you, what is the definition of insanity? When you try to do the same thing over and over again, but expect a different result. And yet, how often do we do that as Christians? So, I want you to notice with me Nicodemus' approach here this morning. Notice what he says. He says, Rabbi, now notice, catch this word, we know. He doesn't say, Rabbi, I know. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from, come from God, for no one can do these signs, plural, that you do unless God is with him. So take note of that word, we, and that word, signs. Because this helps you know a little bit of the psychosis of Nicodemus. He comes respectfully, he comes expectantly, and he comes honestly. His opening statement, though, is telling in so many ways. Because right out of the gates, he acknowledged Jesus as rabbi. He says, you are uniquely gifted. You are uniquely knowledgeable. Even going so far as to say, you're one of a kind. But notice, he says, God is with him. He doesn't say that he is God. He says, we notice that God is with you. He doesn't say, because we know that you are God. See, and notice as well that Nicodemus uses the word rabbi. And that's an interesting word for him to choose. Because that's an expression of equality, not submission. He's actually saying rabbi, because Nicodemus himself was a rabbi. And he uses the word we, which means on some level, he's speaking not just for himself, but others. So remember, he's a part of the Sanhedrin. He's 71. So whether he's speaking for the whole group or maybe he's coming because him and some others in the group have these same burning secret questions. And Nicodemus is kind of in the guy who says, I'll go. I'll go. I'll find him. I'll have this chat with him. But let's dig a little deeper into Nicodemus. It seems like he's saying, and I paraphrase here. This is Steve's translation. Listen, Jesus, Rabbi, you're not in Galilee anymore. This is Jerusalem. There's a right way and a wrong way to do things up here. This is where the temple is. You know, turning water into wine, good. Right? Hailing folks and doing incredible things, good. But that whole temple thing, that's bad. Why, do you, why would you do that? You see, Nicodemus comes for a philosophical discussion. He even comes for a theological discussion, even a political discussion. He wants to ask questions about motive and identity and purpose, and he's respectful. He's even flattering. 
But as we know from 2, 23, 24, 25, that it's not supernatural faith. It's man-made wishful thinking. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. <laughs> Nicodemus, he, he compliments Jesus. He offers Jesus acceptance from the highest earthly authority in all Judaism. He acknowledges his unique power and goes so far as to say, listen, you're really a one-of-a-kind guy. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but I find the present-day reality in this. I have had, literally, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say this, countless discussions with people about Jesus. They're fascinated about him, curious about him. They're even acknowledging. They love to even get in debates about his existence or his purpose, his called power and his teaching. But when you actually talk about repentance, needing forgiveness from sin, that hell does exist and that the holiness of God demands the wrath of God, that he has power and authority and the right to tell us how to live and how to treat each other and how to approach him, well, now that's something entirely different. I had a conversation just in the last 72 hours where someone in front of me over coffee said, are you saying to me that if I don't ask God to forgive me of my sin and I don't trust in him that I would, you, you're telling me I will go to hell? And when I said very gently, yes, the coffee was over. And I was told, well, you're not very tolerant. That's awfully narrow-minded. Now, the happy ending of that story is I got a call the next day, and it was a completely different conversation. And a lot of tears were shed. And God's at work. But I say all that because, let's be honest, when you're first confront confronted with the gospel, when Jesus really tells you who he is, which we're going to get to, it is not an easy thing to take. Here is Nicodemus. He's doing all these things. Now, let's learn from Jesus, because no, point two, Jesus, the God who knows our need. All right, that's the second point. Now, if you look at verse three, Jesus seems to completely ignore Nicodemus' pedigree and his approach. In fact, there's a great evidence that Jesus here is in fact God because if Jesus was just a guy, if he was just a revolutionary, if he was just a political upriser, wouldn't the words of Nicodemus have flattered him? Like that was the golden opportunity for Jesus to say, I'm in. This is a Sanhedrin guy. He says, I'm a good guy. Like if he was really in it for himself, he would have accepted that flattery. But the fact that he rejects it, just like when Satan in Matthew 4 comes to him and says, look, all I ask, bow down and worship me. I'll give you the whole world. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because you know what Satan offered him? He offered him a crossless power. And Jesus says, that's not why I came. And so this is what we do. Jesus didn't come for the praise of people, but to do the will of his father. Isn't that what we celebrated just a few weeks ago of Easter week? He did it. He's alive. That would have been a great place, Mary, for you to go, amen. There you go. I needed that. And that's why chapter 2, verses 23 to 25 is so important. Okay? Think about who the writer is, John the Apostle. He masterfully shows us that Jesus doesn't need, need know what's inside of man. 
that old, old translator of the Bible, a guy named Westcott, he writes this. The Lord answered not Nicodemus' words, but his thoughts. The, Lord an- the Lord's answers to questions will be found generally to reveal the true thought of the questioner and to be fitted to guide him to the truth with which he is seeking. So Jesus says those famous words. Look at verse 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's the words. Born again. Just like in the video, they actually mean born from above. Okay, that's what they mean. They have profound meaning and impact. When Jesus says this, it is not some little cliched prayer or some mindless decision made. It's not a formula. It's not some cheap head nod or lip service. Being born again should be as radical as it sounds. We should all have the reaction that Nicodemus has in verse 4. And that word, truly, truly, that expression that Jesus uses three times in just the first 15 verses, it gives weight and importance. In other words, Jesus says, Nicodemus, think of it as this jockey and almost like a poker game. And we're back and forth. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, I see your human understanding and I raise it with spiritual authority and proclamation. You say this, I say truly, truly this. You must be born again. Now, lest we all gloss over it, including me, I want you to see the exclusiveness of Jesus' claim. (laughs) Jesus looks at this teacher, this, this religious elite man, respected, revered, and he categorically says to him, unless you are born again, notice this, no one can even see the kingdom of God. He says, you can't see it. Later, he'll say, you can't enter it. But he starts by saying, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. And that word cannot, if you write in your Bible, underline it, highlight it, circle it, okay? The great old commentator, Merrill Tenney, he sums this up. He says, Jesus bluntly answered his question before he could ask it, asserting That without a complete change, comparable only to rebirth, the natural man could not enter the spiritual kingdom. And the word cannot implies incapability rather than prohibition. He's not saying, I prohibit you. He's saying, you're incapable of. The natural man is not arbitrarily barred from the kingdom. He is inherently incapable of apprehending it. Just as a blind man cannot enjoy a sunset, God's mysteries are not the heritage of the learned or the moral or the religious simply because of learning morality or religion. They are the heritage of the spiritually transformed. (laughs) I got to tell you guys, this stuff excites me. And this, this profound term, you must be born again. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus, and he's telling you and I here in, in uh, the last of April of 2017, to be a Christian, to, to believe in Jesus, means to confess your sin and your sinfulness, a.k.a. repentance. It means asking for forgiveness. You want your biblical examples? Think of the publican who wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Think of the thief on the cross. Remember what he says to his other buddy? 
you and I are here and we belong here. We deserve to be here. This man in between us doesn't belong here. And what does he say? Remember me? Remember me? Think of the Apostle Paul. I love the progression with the Apostle Paul because early in his ministry, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. Then about halfway through his, his ministry, he says, I'm the least of all Christians. And then when you get to the end of his life, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. It seems like the older he got and the closer to God he got, the more he understood how great God's grace was. So I would submit to you that Jesus says, being born again, are you ready for this? I love these acronyms, all right? I worked hard at this. If I place categories, I'm hoping to get an S, spiritual things, and so I'll score lots of points. It's super necessary, it's supernatural, and it'll always have super results. Jesus says you must be born again. You must be, mean, must mean it's super necessary. But he also says you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot see it or enter it, so it must be supernatural. And when you do, it has super results. And we see that this little sentence was literally for a modern cliche or a modern uh, expression, it was mind-blowing to Nicodemus. Literally, he probably went, okay, G Jesus, like, boom. Really? And if you read the Gospels and the life and interaction of Jesus, you see this over and over again, right? What about the rich young ruler? Hey, rabbi, again, there was that rabbi, how can I have eternal life? Remember the Pharisee praying to, to God in, in the temple, the opposite of the publican? When he says, Lord, and I love this prayer. If you ever read it, think about how subtle it is. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Don't, don't miss that. He actually is very, very religious. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like them. Because I fast and I tithe. And I'm definitely not like that dude there. It's the ultimate case of comparative righteousness. And again, remember, it's like Steve Doss said, no matter what your position, Jesus corrects it. Remember James and John? When they come to Jesus, hey, and, and actually, they don't come to Jesus, Mama does. Remember, Mama goes to Jesus and says, listen, when you do this kingdom thing, I want my boys on the left and right. And what does Jesus say? You don't know what you're asking. Remember the woman at the well that we're going to look at in the next chapter? Jesus says, if you drink from me, you'll never thirst. And she's like, well, I just need some water. Right? She's thinking earthly. Jesus is talking spiritual. See, Jesus is always about and that sacrifice, he's always directing us away from whatever our worldly confidence is in to the spiritual realities of heaven. Leon Morris puts it like this. In one sentence, Jesus sweeps away all that Nicodemus stood for and demands that he be meet, remade by the power of God. Huh. So before I even go on, let me ask you this by way of personal reflection. Now, really be honest with yourself. What's your confidence in? Think deeply in your own heart. To what do you cling to for life and death and meaning? What are you fighting for or are you surviving for? Some of you in this room have simply given up and you're hoping to make it as long as you can. Some of you have said, 
I'm just giving in. In fact, I will tell you on a very personal note, when I knew I had given my life to Christ, one of the prayers I rehearsed to Jesus that night was, listen, either you're real and I'm going to figure this out to live with you and you're going to show me yourself. Or listen, I can't keep up these appearances and this facade. When I get up, if you're not real and I'm going to give up, I give up. I'm just going to go live whatever way I live. And I quoted the old Western. I just said, God, I'll see you in hell. That was the argument and the fight I had with God that night. Because you're, that's what you're left with. It's like the one, remember, if, you, if you've ever battled a diet... Have you ever have said, okay, I need to go on a diet, and then you, you, change, you pick the diet, and you, you try, and then you find out it's really hard, and then you're really feeling down, or you're not getting the results you want, so you go, I can't do this, so I might as well eat what I want. I mean, it's not like I'm losing anything. I know I won't be healthy or like whoever I was wanting to be like, but at least I'll enjoy this while I hate myself and others. So where's the ice cream? Right? We've all done it. Again, one commentator sums it up like this. Jesus was telling him, Nicodemus, that entrance to God's salvation was not a matter of adding something to all of his efforts, not topping off his religious devotion, but rather canceling everything and starting all over again. you got to see, now that's radical. Tim Keller puts it like this. I love this. He says, religion stresses holiness over grace. Irreligion stresses freedom over holiness. Christianity is freedom through grace that leads to holiness. Oh, that we could see the difference in that. So it makes sense, number three, that Nicodemus responds the way he does. Look at this, that searching and confused question. Look at verse four. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, I don't know about you, but all my life, most of my life as I read this, I used to think this is a V8 moment. Have you ever seen those V8 commercials when somebody is doing something and then somebody goes like, they lick their palm and go right on the forehead, like that's your V8 wall call, right? Because they're eating something sugary or something, and they should be eat, drinking V8 because it gives you your, you know, your portions of vegetables and fruits and everything else. I just, I just look at this. when I Growing up, I read this and thought, Jesus must have looked at him and just wanted to bonk him on the forehead. You know, here's a smart guy, and he, and he seems to be taking Jesus' words and going all literal with them. But I don't want you to get fooled by this. As I've studied this out, Nicodemus, it's not that Nicodemus thought Jesus means this literally. Like you got to figure out, like, you know, can he enter a... I mean, that's really kind of gross, what he says. You see you got to realize he, he knows that Jesus is not talking about being physically reborn. He knows that. But he replies back to Jesus in the same context of the Lord's analogy. See, again, Merrill Tenney, this old commentator, he says, the question rather meant this, I acknowledge that a new birth is necessary, but am I too old to change? My pattern of life is set. Physical birth is out of the question, and psychological rebirth seems even less probable. Granting the truth of what you say, is not my case hopeless? <laughs> to summarize it, he's saying, how could he start all over again? How can I go back to the beginning? <laughs> but Jesus was telling him that entrance to God's salvation was, again, not adding something. 
Do you remember the video, for those of you here last week, the, where Nicodemus, the guy who played Nicodemus, he basically said, you know, 613 laws. And Jesus looks at me in a sentence and says, none of it matters. And you're fooling yourself to think you're obeying them anyway. <laughs> you see, Jesus' word regarding the new birth shatters once for all every supposed excellence of man's attainment all merit of human deeds, all prerogatives of natural birth or situation. Nicodemus is blown away. Spiritual birth is something someone under, something one undergoes, not something he produces. See, Nicodemus really thought, okay, Rabbi, tell me what I got to do to measure up to you. And Jesus says, you can't pull it off. <laughs> Basically saying, Nicodemus, your efforts have nothing to do. He, sa- he reminds them, Did you have anything to do with your natural conception and birth? I didn't. I was born. In fact, I barely have recollection that I was present for it. Everything I know about it, I get from my mother, who hates great joy in telling me the pain I caused her, especially as a means to manipulate me into obeying her. 38 hours I was in labor with you. You see what a blow this was to Nicodemus? Jesus basically says, hey, listen, being a Jew, that doesn't mean you're a part of the kingdom. Being a Pharisee and esteemed holier than other people, that doesn't get you anything. Being a member of the Sanhedrin and your fame as one of the great teachers of, of Israel, it's for nothing. <laughs> this young rabbi from Galilee calmly looks at one of the most respected men of all of Israel and says, you're not even yet in the kingdom. You don't even yet see it. Everything that Nicodemus had built his hopes on amounted to nothing. And I don't want you to miss this because every one of us struggles with this too. Nicodemus' question displays where his mind and heart was. The shock of Jesus' words led him. Nicodemus said, how can I do this? How can I be born again? What you're asking is too much. Dare I say it's impossible. Look, if you'll just tell me what to do, then I'll give it a shot. But if you're saying what I think you're saying, dude, that's crazy. And have you and I not struggled with that? We think Jesus is an add-on? I grew up in a world where it basically said, give me a list. Tell me what to do. Tell me what not to do. Give me a task. But tell me to admit that I can't. Tell me to admit that I even won't. Tell me I deserve death and hell. Tell me that I'm not good or won't be good enough. Don't tell me that I'm not a good person. Tell me that my situation in life is not an excuse. Tell me that my goodness or my desire to be good is not good enough. Tell me that my good deeds or my heritage is worthless. And that will make some people shocked. Friends, the gospel is meant to drive us to helplessness. It's meant to be shocking. It really is offensive. But if you embrace it and believe it and trust it, the good news is extremely good. Look at the next verse when Jesus explains the gospel. He says, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus again uses that term, truly, truly. He once again doesn't deal with the actual question of Nicodemus, but rather gives him the answer that he needs to hear. Basically, Jesus says, Nicodemus, you want to argue on how, but you need to know why. You want to know what to do. I want to tell you what I'm going to do. You want to know how you can possibly pull this off. I want you to know who I am and that I'm going to do this for you. J.C. Ryle says, Jesus tells our friend, it is a thorough change of heart, will, and character. It is resurrection. It is a new creation. It's passing from death to life. It's impaling in our dead hearts a new principle from above. In verse 5, cannot enter, turns, cannot see, turns to cannot enter. Jesus again says you've got to be born again. To be born again is to be completely changed by God. Now verse 6 messes people up sometimes. Notice what he says. That, uh, he says, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, and there's been a host of things that people have tried to say, that that means born of water means physical birth, and born of the Spirit is spiritual birth, or that it means baptism. I need you to know it. this is where our English fails us, because in the Greek, it actually just means born again. It's the exact same expression, born from above. So when he says that unless one is born of water and the Spirit, you could put there, unless you are born again. But it comes out, Nicodemus would have known this. This wasn't a new thought. Go back to, if you have a Bible and you want to, Ezekiel chapter 36. Listen to the prophet Ezekiel in 36, 24, where he quotes God and he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And notice this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to carefully obey my rules. Do you see how much this passage parallels verses six to eight? Nicodemus knew this. He would have known this passage by heart. And so again, born again is super necessary but it's also supernatural, and it always has super results. You'll notice being born from above is not something you do. It's what Jesus does. And we've all struggled with this, and we've experienced it in our lives. And sometimes we come to Jesus because I like what Jesus might be able to add to my life, but we've never really believed in him. To me, the most shocking verses of all the Bible are Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, too many of us come to Jesus in the 21st century and we like the idea of being safe. But most of us, when we first heard the gospel in its true form, 
if you were honest, you, you, you reacted like, what? That's the gospel? And either your response was, listen, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. Or for some of you that have really failed in life, you'll think, well, John, then I'm too bad. Jesus would never want me. And so either we fight thinking we can pull it off, or we're like the person who fails at the diet and says, well, why bother? But Jesus says that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we're dead in our sin. The great doctor to the king who became a pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was the doctor to the king of England. He says this, the world is not interested in the affairs of the soul at all and tries to avoid considering them. The world is spiritually dead, dead in trespasses and sin, and it regards spiritual things as utterly boring. It wants to enjoy the world. It's out for the glittering prizes the world has to offer. But the Christian has been made spiritually alive. He or she is concerned about the affairs of the soul. They are the things that come first in his or her life and in all his or her thinking. How then has this happened? It's the power of Christ. God has made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our trespasses. And we know this, don't we? Charles Spurgeon cried out, You may be rich or you may be poor, but you must be born again. You may be intelligent, you may be educated, you may be talented, but you must be born again. It's super necessary, but it's also supernatural. The old preacher Skip Ryan said, Being born again is not a decision you make. Whoever you are, however you've come to Christ, you have been the object of God's supernatural work in your heart. Jesus comes and calls. Jesus lived and died. But when God saves us, it produces super results because you'll now have faith in Jesus not in yourself not in your religion not in your church someone who was born again comes to Jesus and only Jesus Charles Spurgeon said it like this sorrow for sin is one of the sure signs of the new nature so there's sorrow for sin there's a desire to pray there's a different set of desires you're different and as I finish this morning you have all seen this let me give you the greatest miracle of being born again I know, and that is of my grandfather. My grandfather was an alcoholic. My grandfather died at 69 years old, largely because he abused his life. But he was the biggest human being I ever knew, and he was bigger than life to me because he died when I was 13. He was about 6'4", weighed well over 300 pounds. For those of you who feel your, I think Eugene might appreciate this, you could put a Newfoundland silver dollar through his wedding ring. That's how big his fingers were. If you know how big a silver dollar, a Newfoundland silver dollar is, it was huge. He wore size 18 shoe. He was a massive man. When he died, we had eight pallbearers. When my dad got saved, my grandfather didn't care because he didn't know what the word meant. But when he got baptized and joined another church that wasn't the church he was raised in, my grandfather buried his birth certificate in the backyard and never spoke to my father for over three years. And dad actively kept track, or my grandfather actively kept track because we would go there every Sunday for Sunday dinner and we would go in, Papa would hug me, he'd hug my mom, and then my dad would go, hey dad, how you doing? And stick out his hand and my grandfather would say every week, who are you? My son died a week ago. And would keep active tracks. Like, who are you? My son died two years, four months, and two weeks ago. Like, he actively kept count. I was 12 years old. My grandfather had a massive stroke, and so he was bedridden. And I was very concerned about the soul of my grandfather. I 
I quite honestly looked up to him in ways I can't because he was so strong. And I remember going into his bedroom and I wanted my grandfather to be saved and I sat on the side of my grandfather's bed, 12 years old, and my grandfather lay in that bed and his chest would heave and he'd wear that, that, that tank top, those white classic tank tops that those old Newfoundland guys would wear and his chest would heave and I couldn't even make eye contact with him because I was petrified of him. So I just looked out the window and I said, Pop, I don't want you to die and go to hell. I so badly want you to know Jesus the way Dad knows Jesus. I said, don't you want to know Jesus that way? And my grandfather never said anything. He just breathed. And so finally I worked up enough courage to turn my head and look him in the eye. And when I looked over, this massive tear was sliding down the side of my grandfather's face. And he looked at me and he said, Stephen, I want to, but I don't know how. And I said, Pop, if I tell you, will you listen? And so I knew enough as a 12-year-old boy, quoted verses from Romans chapter 3 and quoted John 3.16 and I said, Pop, you just got to own you're a sinner. And my grandfather prayed for the first time ever in my life. It was a very simple thing. He just said, oh, God, I need you. This man who everybody feared, he cursed and swore and drank. By the time my father came back, and, of course, I went and told my father, and my father actually didn't believe me. My mother threatened to punish me because she did not believe that my grandfather had gotten saved and said that I shouldn't be creating this kind of trouble in the family and so on and so forth. And my father was so afraid. But yet what happened was the next Sunday when we went, just before my grandfather got taken to the hospital, we went in and Dad said, hey, Dad, how you doing? And he took his hand and he said, how are you, son? First time in over three years. At dinner, Pop, who would be sullen and angry, we were in mid-meal and Pop looks up and says, Wayne, how's that church you're going to doing? <laughs> Pop had another stroke that night and was taken to the hospital. My father was still too afraid to ask his own dad about these things, so he took his pastor. And he basically said, well, you ask him. So if he gets mad at you, he'll do something violent to you and not me. They went into the Carbonier Hospital, and my pastor, my first pastor I ever had, sat next to him, and he said, Ern, your grandson says you have come to Jesus and Pop said yep I said when did you do that just recently I prayed together that night for the first time ever my dad got to pray with his own father 10 days later my grandfather was dead but he was a completely different man because of Jesus you must be born again. It is super necessary. It is supernatural. And it has super results. And you may be out there this morning. I'll see, listen, you don't know how messed up I am. Or some of you might even be offended and say, listen, I'm not as bad as you make me out to be. And I would say, yes and yes. You are as bad as you think you're not. And you're not so bad that Jesus doesn't love you. In fact, one of the famous expressions, favorite expressions I was ever told is, I've never met the sinner who went to God who Jesus didn't want. If you'll just go to him. You can't save yourself, but if you're sensing God calling you, don't fight it, respond. And it will change your life forever. Why? Because our last song this morning is, he is a good 
good father. Let's close in prayer. Father God, as we make our way through this ever-famous passage of Scripture, I pray that my friends and family here have learned and realized that this passage is not as simple as just reciting it or just glossing over it. I want them to see the tension of Nicodemus and the glorious, powerful promises of Jesus in these words. Lord, I pray if anybody's here and they are hurting or searching or doubting that they would realize you're a good, good father. I pray for any that are running from you or cynical or proud or angry and think, this offends me. Oh, Father, would you yell into their ears and heart that you're a good, good father. Would you empower us by your spirit also to be committed to wanting to show our friends, our loved ones, our neighbors, our co-workers, this city, not some legalistic, Father, false religion, but just the profound supernatural transformation of when someone meets Jesus. Lord, you did it to my grandfather. You did it to me. Oh, I played church better than most. And you saved me. Help us all to come to you. In Jesus' name and all God's people said.